Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2018. Episode 225, Queer Erasure, presented by Sam Saltiel, Elsa S. Henry, Avenel Wing, and Eli Eaton. about queer erasure, even in queer content, in RPGs and the gaming community as a whole. Uh, I am Avenel Wing. I will be moderating from down here because our stage is smaller than four people. Uh, I am going to mostly leave control of the panel in Sam's hands, uh, but I'm here to like fend off anyone who explodes through the door and yells inappropriate things. <laughs> uh, so, can the panelists each introduce yourselves? Let's start with Sam. Yeah, so, hi, I'm Sam. I also go by Sarah. Um, I am one of the sponsorship winners. Um, I started out in game design by working on an alternate reality game. Since then, I've interned with Magpie Games. And I'm currently um, working on a game about shapeshifting aliens in the 1950s that is specifically about queer erasure. I need to play this, like, now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. So, and Sam proposed the panel topic. Uh, do you want to give us, like, the, the two-sentence, like, yeah. why this matters? Yeah, so increasingly we have seen um, representations of queerness in gaming. Um, and, and most of them are really amazing representations, but I think both in terms of design and GMing, it's important to talk about erasure because I think that's kind of like a next level conversation when it comes to identity. It's not 101 anymore, it's 201 or 301 because it's this idea of like there's not just this singular way of being this identity and it's important to think about the ways that different identities are... Um, Erased, for lack of a better word, um, because of the way that we choose to represent like an overall arching identity. Hi, I'm Elsa Shemison Henry. I'm a deafblind science fiction writer and editor. I'm also a game designer. I've worked on Dead Scare, which is 1950s housewives murdering zombies, which is why I want to play your game. Um, I've also worked on a lot of World of Darkness products, um, including Wraith and um, Changeling. Uh, and I was the LGBT resource coordinator at a Catholic university for four years of undergrad. 
What a time. <laughs> yeah. Hi, I'm Eli Eaton. I'm, I'm a queer trans guy from Canada. I, um, I've been running games for about four years or so, GMing them and whatnot. Um, just started writing them. Um, and uh, I have a lot of experience coordinating nerdy, uh, queer social groups. Um, so that's my main experience. Um, so yeah, so I'm sorry my voice sounds like this. So before we start going on to like questions and things like that, I wanted to start out with a little bit of an exercise. Um, so if any of you have like phones or pieces of paper or anything like that, if you could um, take them out. Does somebody have a pen I can borrow? Awesome. Because I checked for a pen earlier and this is what felt like a pen. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, what I want everyone to do is um, jot down like maybe let's say eight identities that you hold um, labels that people might describe to you things like that like just think about all the identities that um, apply to you Um, if we're all ready, I, I will share what I wrote. Um, the panelists can if they want, and I think anyone in the audience can if they want, and then we can move on to what I want to say, which is starting to think about what we wrote down. So for me, I wrote femme presenting, um, designated female at birth, non-binary, mentally ill, white, queer, and able-bodied, technically seven, but do you feel comfortable? Sure. I wrote down uh, disabled deaf-blind, queer, bisexual, Jewish, writer, activist, and survivor. And I put um, queer, trans, gender non-conforming, uh, white, middle class, and mentally ill. Does anyone have any they want to share? Sure. Um, Jewish, white, butch, bisexual, lesbian, I'm exclusively attracted to non-men, so, uh, non-binary, AFAB, uh, assigned female at birth, disabled an artist. So, the reason that I had you do this is because I think it's important to think about which labels are applied to us and then which ones we hold the most important. So if you were to choose two of these labels, would you be able to choose which ones like you feel are the most crucial to you? And it's important, like, this is not to say, like, necessarily that the other labels, like, don't apply, but it's it's thinking about, um, for example, I probably wouldn't list white as one of mine, even though that's played a major part of the way that I've experienced things, because I haven't struggled with it, because I haven't been oppressed on, on that basis. And so while, like, I've dealt with, with things because I'm queer, because I'm mentally ill, because I'm white, I've still had these advantages within that. Um, so it's just, I, I wanted to get you all thinking about how your identities interact with each other. I have a question for the crowd. How many of you, when people started listing the identities, went, oh, I totally should have written that down? So yeah, so that was my short little exercise. Awesome. Thank you. 
Um, do you have a specific place that you want to start? Yeah. Really? Okay, how about, uh, is there a game out there that does a good job of engendering visibility? I think, so I think Monster Hearts is always like a very interesting mm -hmm. place to start in terms of talking about queer representation, specifically because it denies all labels. Um, and so that, I don't, I don't know how my panelists, my co-panelists feel <laughs> about it. Um, I, th I think I love the way Monster Hearts represents queerness, but it's, it's very good in terms of the internal versus the external generally um because you're facing with like this internalized monstrousness or otherness um for the mic i'm putting these in quotations um while oftentimes looking entirely um like everyone around you and there are the places where like they start to um intersect and start to affect the way that people do see you and when they become visible and so i think that's a really interesting way to play around with it without even getting into labels um i think the the first game that comes to mind for me is blue rose because they did a lot of work in creating space for queer romantic love stories and i think that that's really important because we don't have a lot of places where we get to play out those storylines um, where it's explicitly encouraged within the text of the book. So that's kind of where my mind goes at first. I think, hands down, my favorite uh, game for queer representation is actually Dream Askew, which is also created by the same author as Monster Hearts, um, because it is like uh, explicitly about exploring queer community within uh, like a dysfunctional world, which is basically what where we're living now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So my, my next question comes with a tiny anecdote, which is in high school when I realized that I was queer, I had been thinking in binary, either you were straight or you were lesbian or gay. And the concept that there was an entire spectrum in the middle was like, intellectually I understood it, but it wasn't an option that was socially presented. Mm -hmm. And so um, I had a lightning bolt and was like, oh crap, this is super complicated. Um, but then years later, uh, there was an episode of Allie McBeal where uh, two women kiss and they're like, that was nice and I might do it again, but like, not with you, maybe with you. And that moment where it was treated like a complete non-issue. Nobody was having an identity crisis. Mm -hmm. Nobody was wailing and gnashing their teeth. And the news media was not flailing about the fact that this episode had happened. It was the first time that I felt like media had seen mm -hmm. my identity. And I felt suddenly like someone was reversing the erasure. Mm -hmm. Do you have a moment where you had that lightning strike of, that... That would have been really nice when I was 15. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I don't think there's a whole lot of specifically by representation in, mm -hmm. in the media. Um, because I feel like there's this space where once a character kisses a character of the same gender, then it's like, well, they're gay now. That's what's happening. It's like, no, 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 that doesn't, that doesn't need to be explicitly what's happening here. There could be, like, other ways to deal with this. Yeah, I'm in a straight-facing marriage, which means that I'm married to a man, and I'm bisexual, and so 
I have had to work really hard to present as queer, and I find that I haven't seen anything in media yet that has really portrayed what it's like to be a bisexual woman in a straight-facing marriage, um, because I feel like people find that too confusing. And so I'm. I, I hope that they. <laughs> like how everyone's like, yes. You just fix it the way I did. Huh? <laughs> I, I have I, one partner of uh, one male partner and one one man and one woman. Yeah, we so can't I'm match that. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that because this is going on the internet. <laughs> I've just because of literally because there are more men than there are queer women if we're going to put this into binaries but I've also ended up dating more men and so I've ended up being like aggressively like I have to present as queer and so I always make the joke with like the undercut and the tattoo on one side I'm like this is my gay half and this is my straight half (laughs) (laughs) what what I actually ended up doing was I ended up um, telling my my straight really straight husband that we were going to put a pride flag on our house because I was like you know what our house needs to be a place where people know that queer people live here because I come from a queer community I am a queer woman I don't want to pass and it's this weirdness where I think literally everyone in the queer community for one reason or another has been told that they don't belong there mm-hmm. yes. which is strange because it's supposed to be a community that's meant to like be inclusive but straight married queer people are like well you're not gay anymore you're straight married that's how it works yeah. or like there there's a bunch of marginalization of people of color disabled people or all the do you want to get me started <laughs> <laughs> it's like in terms of now mainstream media it's like okay we can have the gays but they're just white cis gay men <laughs> like that's that's what gay looks like scary. right i've yes, never exactly. seen i have never seen a disabled queer person in a movie or in a book or in a play or in a in a in a game that wasn't evil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't the bad guy. Right, yeah. right. But I mean, here's the thing. Most of the time, we don't get to have sexuality anyway, so it's kind of like, thanks, guys. But the anecdote that I want to share, because it makes me so angry I could spit, is that a blind person with a service dog was denied entry to Stonewall last year. Oh, my God. And so our community needs to just sit down and listen and uh, comply with the ADA and let people who are disabled into our spaces because right now I can't go to Pride, I can't go to Stonewall I can't go to half of the places where my queer friends go because it's all inaccessible Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, that was my No, that's okay Do not apologize, you've been asked to speak on this panel Like (laughs) The question, have I ever had that moment of do I wish there was a thing uh, it's tricky because like I've I've come out several times as different things. So mm-hmm. I came out as like a a bisexual woman woman when I was a teenager, and now I'm coming out as like a bisexual man. Um, but one thing, and this is gonna sound so strange, but in Game of Thrones, the character Brienne of Tarth, although she's not explicitly queer and she's not explicitly trans, I was like. I can relate to that narrative of feeling like my body was not meant for the roles in the world that I live in, and I really wish I had that when I was a kid. Yeah. So. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there any follow up to that that sparked for you guys? I had a thought, but I lost it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, if there was one thing that you would add to your favorite game to bump up the intersectionality and to make sure that all queer people could be represented, what would you add? So, 
I sometimes wish there was a way to mechanize intersectionality. I feel like that's a like fairly impossible task because it's so nuanced and so complicated. But if there was a way to, not, like not even in a, any specific game, but if there, there is a way in any game to take all these identities and really accurately map the way that they influence each other and specifically the way that they influence social dynamics with other characters. I think like I, I'm trying to make a game about queer erasure, but it's still like it, it, it's still like intersectionality feels like a very impossible thing to accomplish sometimes. But I, I, I do like games that try to like really put this effort towards like here are the things that are unified in this experience and then here are the ways that all the people experience it differently. So I think um, Avery also did a game, I want think I think it's called A Place to Fuck, um, where it, it allows like a wide variety of identities, but there is this one core unifying experience of like they're looking for a space of their own. It's all about like finding space for yourself in the world. And I think that's it I, I think that's a very core part of this in terms of like intersectionality helps us point out a lot of the ways that we are experiencing things differently but also a lot of the ways that we're experiencing things in the same way and I think both of those parts are really necessary to talk about these sorts of experiences. You know it's funny I um I actually wrote Disability for Blue Riot Rose a couple years ago and I think one of the things that we need to be doing is not just adding disabled characters to our stories but explicitly saying that disabled people do have romantic relationships in our games. We need to be explicitly depicting disabled people having um, kissing in our books. Like, look, I've never seen an illustration of a disabled person getting kissed in a game book. So we need to be doing that because I think that that's part of the work. So I think it's somewhat about your art direction and really like thinking outside of your own norms. I think it's this tension of we need to like have this feeling, like show that there's this feeling of like we feel othered by society, but mm -hmm. we are not other. We mm -hmm. still have these human experiences. We still participate in these experiences and that's very important. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, one thing so is the question about what things that we design or things we wish we'd see in designs? Either. Okay. Yeah, so one thing I would like to see in historical uh, sort of games is um, allowing people to take on marginalized identities that weren't necessarily seen uh, in that time frame or considered to be in that time frame because we know they were mm -hmm. there. They were. They just weren't recorded. Um, and so, like, I would like... Uh, people who write those sorts of games to write that into their script or their prompts or whatever that people can play like a queer person a trans person a person of color you know so and I think ultimately with that it comes down to like when you're at the table you then have to have a discussion like are we trying to have more historically accurate um, in which case like it's like okay we at the table have to be okay with the fact that we're dealing with this very heavy issues but that can be like very interesting gameplay or are we going to take a more like this is sort of an alternate version of history where everyone's which is like well we don't want to like white i'm gonna say whitewash but apply it to like all of these straight wash <laughs> able body wash yeah we don't want to so it's like important to have that conversation at the table to acknowledge like 
if we play these as like they are being treated like everyone else like we still need like that's not how they were being treated and like we might just well i'm a historian (laughs) (laughs) and um that's not always true it depends on what country you're playing it depends on what time period you're playing in one of the things i was talking about history yeah yeah um, so, like, there's a lot of people who say, oh, but there there were no disabled people out and about in the 1950s. And I'm like, you need to go look up the 501 sit-in. Um, the argument that they're not there, just that they were Right. Treated. So, like, you... People like to say that history is only these kinds, certain kinds of people. But there are so many different parts of history that not everybody knows. And so you may be playing out a perfectly historically accurate moment that you just don't know it was because you haven't read all of the history in the world because nobody has. Mm-hmm. But there have been really powerful societies of women in this world. There have been really powerful groups of disabled people in this world. There have been disabled leaders. There have been queer, there have been queer communities everywhere. Um, there has not always been violent racism in every country around the world. And so that's kind of why when I hear people say historically accurate, I'm like, well, what... What does that mean to you? (laughs) Because I think that it means to most people that they get to play racist and sexist and whatever else they want to play, and that's not actually... No, 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 no. They get to bring their racism and their sexism to the table. Thank you, yes. And not be judged for. Thank you, yes. That's what I was trying to get at. I I think even if it was a game that was dealing with with a setting, like Mm -hmm. if it was Civil War era and we were dealing with minority there, it would still... I would still highly caution against player against player. Like absolutely, that would be a, a really. But I, I guess what I was trying to get at is that historically accurate doesn't actually mean the same thing across the board. Oh yeah, that's what I want people to take away. Yeah, and I also um, I I play more for experiences and feelings. So like that, I sort of chuck historical accuracy out of the window <laughs> for the things that I design because, you know, aspects of history sucked, and I'm here to have fun. So. Um, but there's also something important to allowing people to play marginalized characters that are successful and mm-hmm. have happy endings. Because oh, yeah. so often in media, they're portrayed as like being miserable and dying at a young age and da 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 da. Um, like when you when you give especially young people the chance to have to see slash have happy narratives um, involving um, their marginalized identities, it gives them more hope you know, for a better future. Yeah. So. And that's, that's actually one thing I do want to say is I really want to see more queer-focused LARPs that are not about the AIDS crisis. Mm. Because yeah. I'm, <laughs> I am the daughter of an AIDS victim, and I really can't engage with that. Yeah. And I want to play LARPs that are about being queer, but I need to see more stories than just that one being repeated over and over again. I think in some ways... What you were saying kind of reminded me of this. Well, A, first off, I wanted to say Pelgrane, actually, if any of you know, Pelgrane mm-hmm. does a very uh, interesting job of like providing historical context for yeah. all of its settings and being like, look, you can play with this context or you can choose not to, but here it is, we are giving it to you. Um, but I think in some ways, we always are, are very upset about like there's no representation in the media of like me, like I don't see myself in anyone in the media, but I think role-playing is a way for us to take the, mm-hmm. these fictional settings and represent ourselves and mm-hmm. so like what you were saying about wanting to see happy stories like that is sort of what yeah. we're doing is like well I want to see 
someone queer in the wild west who's having like a fucking great time it's like okay you can go we can go role play that and that's that's a very freeing experience as well. And in terms of the Wild West, there are so many badass trans women <laughs> in the actual Wild West history. Yeah, and and trans masculine and trans masculine men as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And also a whole lot of Jewish people in the oh, Wild yeah. West. Yeah. So like that's kind of what I mean by historical accuracy. I'm like you're just not seeing it. <laughs> yeah. So if people are looking for ways to challenge their biases, right? And my favorite current story about biases is I have a friend, I have two friends, actually Elsa and I have a mutual friend, uh, who's, uh, who made the decision not to assign a binary gender to their child until, and leave that, that discussion up to the child and their development. And the gestational parent is, uh, is non-binary. And they get a lot of, oh, it's so progressive that you're using they, them for this kid. And um, the answer is actually no, it's not progressive because the non-gestational parent is indigenous and their culture has had more genders Mm -hmm. than two forever. And so there's a bias there that, that sets the stage that is just like, oh, you're so, you're so with it. No, you're just really, really not. And so what resources do you tap or would you send someone to? Like going and looking at how Pelgrane provides historical <laughs> framing is a good example. What other things might you send people to uh, tap as resources? I mean, <clears throat> um, so you have the more historical. So I was going to... Like of any sort, right? Any like, sort, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was going to say, because you are asking at first, like... Um, how would you avoid bias in your characters? And I was prepared to answer that. Um, oh, sure. And then you can answer historical. Um, but I was gonna say, if you're A as a designer and you're looking at like your character sheets, or B as a player or as a GM, and if there are marginalized characters, whether they're PCs or NPCs, and they only have one identifier, if gay is their only identity, if black is their only identity, not doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to have so many other identities. I mean, I actually say find sensitivity readers for your games. Um, Find, if you are writing outside of your lane, find people to talk to who are within that lane. Let me rephrase that. Sorry? To talk to or to pay? To pay. (laughs) You want to pay them money or services if they want to do a trade, but you ask first. Um, And so, like, you need to pay people for their work and their emotional labor. But sensitivity readers or just straight up hiring people from within that lane to work on your project. Um, If you want to have disabled representation in your tabletop game or in your LARP, you should have disabled people at least putting a word in for how you are representing us. Um, so that's what I would say is just look for sensitivity readers because if you're writing outside of your lane, it, it's it's going to be your biggest resource. I've used them. It's an incredible process. I also am one. I like doing it. <laughs> yeah, mostly I echo what um, these two said, uh, Elsa and, and Sam. Um, of Sam's point too with uh, allowing people like the flexibility of having multi-layered and uh, multi-identified people I think is super important because that's where we get interesting stories uh, that people have not seen before but that like they want to see yeah and I think probably acknowledging those identities is more than just words yeah. um, 
like if you're going to create a character that has several identities, then turning to a sensitivity reader and being like, okay, like what do these, like what would this combination of identities look like? How would they interact with each other? Because if you just write down like, okay, they're this and this and this, that doesn't really, that does the work of looking like you have diversity without actually have being the diversity. Without actually being intersectional. Mm -hmm. Just gonna throw some shade at JK Rowling a little bit. Oh, <laughs> you know. No, 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 no. Uh, so, one of the pitfalls that people run into when they're doing diversity, right, doing diversity, is that they don't stop to uh, observe tropes, yeah. and so mm -hmm. they will be like, okay, this person is, uh, the, uh, there was one this weekend that I was just like, I don't, I, I, I can't even, and I was like, okay, so why is the only pre-gen person of color in your game, the only criminal that you can get. Oh. Oh. Like, I cut the other person of color because I couldn't get the mechanic. Ah, fudge. Like, yeah, but the first thing I saw was that your bias leans in a direction that has been shaped by media, and they were like, I rip, 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 rip. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about how interacting with those those preset uh, combinations of marginalizations maybe could be done well or upended or subverted? Uh, my brain is just freezing. <laughs> Sorry, I was like, I speak first, so maybe. Um, yeah, uh, how can it be? Um, well, okay, so one thing that I will get to the answer, but one thing I think is uh, tends to be a problem sometimes, or why people have difficulty, is because they also don't have a varied amount of friends or people of different mm -hmm. identities. So uh, they have a hard time picturing like um, like a hero that is not uh, um, is not white, yeah, or or a man or whatever, because like that's the people that they interact with. So make more friends that don't look like you or have your background, first of all, or engage with them, read things from those people, um, I think is like a, a good first step. Um, and also like um, really sit down and look at you know, like your villains and your heroes and um, swap things around. Just like um, if you notice that like, yeah, you have a disabled villain, be like, you know what, I'm gonna switch that and put the disabled tag under like uh, the hero and same with people of color, the queer people, mm -hmm. and flip things around and see what works and what's, you wanna look for something new. I think you should look for something new that you haven't seen mm -hmm. before. I also think, I mean, it's okay to play with tropes. I, I wanna make that clear. Like mm. if you are explicitly looking at a trope to try and understand it, Yeah. But you need to be really clear that that's what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote a book that's about a blind woman who can hear the dead. Blind people being able to see ghosts is a big trope. Mm. Being the supernatural seer, whatever, like that's a, that's oh, a yeah. thing. And I wanted to flip it and make it an empowering thing and not a disempowering or making disability creepy kind of thing. Yeah. Um, 
But with like the villain issue, you can have disabled villains, but you can't have them be villains because they're disabled. Like that's so like Mm -hmm. you can have evil queer people, but you can't have them be evil and queer because they're angry that they're queer. Yeah, like the only character that is queer. Right, exactly. (laughs) So like if it's the only one and you're following a trope, that's a problem. If there's multiples, then you can play around with things, but you have to see beyond the surface trope. You have to say, well, they're not evil because they're gay and they're mang- they're mad about the fact that they're gay. Because I'm not going to be evil because I'm bisexual. That's nonsense. If I'm going to be evil, it's because I want to take over the world. Um, <laughs> different things. Yeah, I feel like... <clears throat> and then, like, tropes can be used to, like, investigate very serious things. Like, if this pre-gen character had been, okay, like, let's examine, like, the school-to-prison pipeline, how there's a higher rate of imprisonment for people of color. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be important. I would still say there should be another person of color. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because that, that's that's the thing, is that there, there shouldn't be, like, one of each type of identity that's sort of, like, a weird, like, we'll have to check off all the boxes. Yeah. It's, in each community, there's so many different types of narratives. So I think, um... Mark Truman at one point uh, was talking about cartel and he said that he thinks it's very important for cartel and passion to exist in the same world because they are two very different forms of narratives about the same community and it's important to have one type and it's important to have the other and to show that there are is the spectrum. And I, I think about that a lot in terms of like the, a different form, different communities and the way that we have so many different stories to tell. Um, I'm going to take a moment and shout out to Companion's Tale, which mm. is, I think, hands down the queerest game I've ever played mm. because uh, the designer, Laura Simpson, did a bunch of playtesting, and you pick two face cards, like two illustrations. You, you draw them off the deck, and then you pick which one is telling your, which one is speaking. And it is everybody around the hero. You don't tell the hero's story. You tell the story of all the supporting cast. And at some point early on in the playtesting, she found that they were very straight, very heteronormative, very white stories. And so she took the simplest step. Uh, It used to be you laid out three cards and you picked one that matched your companion instead of a blind draw. And so I went from seeing the hero was the buff, like, and the love interest was the waif to like we played a game that turned into the beast and the hero's love interest went off and raised the hero's child in a poly triad and the hero would come home as the 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 woman the gestational parent would come in with gifts and presents and make amends and then disappear again for years and it was so just making it so that you could not apply your bias to the characters. And then we had a game where we had battle ducks, right? Like not all of it is is super enlightened, but she queered it just by making it so that you got your companion and then you had to pick one of these two people to be that companion. Uh, So it's at the printer now. It should be available for retail probably Q1 2019. And like it is it is so charmingly queer because it's not it it's not it has no baby dyke syndrome. Like, it's, it, it <laughs> didn't go off to freshman year and get angry. No, it's just like, what whatevs. I told mom and she said, yeah, of course you are. <laughs> and it's so, like, 
yeah, we're going to tell queer stories in a way that is completely unscary for the straights. <laughs> Room full of queer people quietly cackling at the idea of scary yeah. straights. <laughs> Fear me. <laughs> um, do you guys have points that you want to make, or are you okay if I open the floor for people to ask questions? Yeah. Okay, so what I'm going to do, because I've watched your face a couple of times, is you're like, wait, what was that thing I just thought? Is I'm handing you this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because it would be compassionate for somebody to do the same thing to me. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call you out. <laughs> okay, do people have questions? Yes? Um, so I'm an illustrator, and uh, one of the things that uh, I've been striving for in my own art uh, has been tr uh, approaching identities and intersectionality, but sometimes those identities are obviously very different from mine, and I don't want to just not have them because they're not my identity, and I'm not qualified, I guess, air quotes, to talk about them, but I also want to be aware of the fact that, like, okay, I'm not black, or, you know, I'm not... I don't come from a very poor background or whatever. Um, and just being aware of those and how to walk that line of, I want to contribute to representation, but I don't want to talk over, if that makes sense. Talk to people. I would say that's the most valuable thing you can do. Um, artists don't exist in isolated bubbles. I think the most valuable art that we can create is, is through conversations with other people and going out into the world. Um, I'm. I'm a student and I'm doing a thesis that's an art thesis about the intersection between femme identities and mental illness. And immediately as part of this, I was like, I need to interview people for this. And so I found about 50 people that I'm interviewing a variety of age, race, gender, presentation, um, sexuality, and I'm just trying to interview as many of them as possible. And then I'm doing portraits and I'm asking them how they want to be represented because I think conversation is one of the most important parts of being an artist but yeah also don't make it like make them feel like it's their job to teach you because it's not I walked past a conversation earlier where a white dude had two black dudes like he was facing oh, them no. and they were against oh, the wall no. and, I, and then when I started working on this they told me that slavery was a topic I couldn't touch and I was like are you guys okay or do you need a rescue and so making sure to be sensitive to time and place and context and buy-in and um, enthusiastic informed consent of like, I am asking you this for professional gain and I am happy to compensate you for your time and it's okay to opt out and it's okay to kick me to your friend that's okay doing one-on-ones, I won't be offended. Um, because a lot of people will try to do the labor because they feel an emotional a commitment to their community. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like laying out all the ways that they could conceivably opt out and making sure that it is actually a consenting dynamic in a way that is not them accidentally extorting themselves. I, I get a lot of emails from people asking me about disability and I've gotten to this point where I have to be like, I, I unless if you're willing to compensate me for my time, I literally don't have time for this. Um, so I now farm it out to other disabled designers who don't have as much work as I do because I don't not that I've gotten too big for my britches or something but just like 
there's only so much 101 labor that you can do in a lifetime. And you're also spreading your cloak of privilege because you've reached a point where you've got the visibility and you're yes. handing that visibility over to other people. Yep. I wish we could like write up like a co like one time. Here's a 101 on this identity. Put it like a cohesive thing, and then just like direct everyone there. Like just we need go a read wiki. this. Come back when you need the 201. People don't read anything you write. <laughs> I know. I, I write these essays, and then people are like, so what did you say about that, the movie? And I'm like... Well, just a really quick comment on that. I have a friend who's a, an indigenous activist, and uh, his he's basically beat me over the head over that because I was giving away so much Trans 101. And he's like, look, you just need to take the, the stance that I take and just turn around and be like, pay me, colonizer. Because <laughs> that's how James responds at this point. Um, yeah. But... The question-wise, I'm trying to figure out how to, to turn this in. Uh, so a lot of what I run into, which is very troubling for me as a non-binary person, uh, is that I see myself more reflected more easily than I see my spouse reflected. Both of us are non-binary. If you don't know uh, Steve, you'll see him, them, wandering around. See, I just did it. Yeah, uh, Steve is six foot eight. Uh, Steve has a majestic communist beard and wears a rainbow yarmulke. You cannot miss them. <laughs> but I don't want to say that inside Steve is a beautiful princess that wants to come out. Part of Steve is a beautiful princess. Yeah. And that uh, viewing of non-binary identities, even within queer communities, is often viewed as, like, I look like, as a, a white woman, quote-unquote, AFAB, of what non-binary looks like to people. And a lot of people are treating non-binaries as, as woman light. So how do you, how would you propose addressing that so someone like Steve is not a joke because the man with the beard in a dress is often a joke. And yeah, I, I think- I have, a, I have a thing that I want to bring up from the science fiction community, which is that there's a lot of non-binary folks in sci science fiction who are asking that calls for proposals not be women and non-binary. Because when you put women and non-binary into the same lump, what you're doing is you're conflating non-binary and womanhood in the same place. Yeah. And so, um, and I'm speaking from a place of out of my lane, but I feel like I've learned a lot from the people who have been speaking to me about this. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the ways that you can do it in terms of your calls for pitches or in terms of your... Your game is not, is, you know, and I, I learned this because that's what I did with Dead Scare, and then I found out that I had fucked up. Um, so making sure that you're not inadvertently making, coding non-binary as femme yeah. is something that's important to work on. That's a good point, because I'd say in, in that case, you're also possibly missing out, if you're interested, in trans-masculine experiences, yeah. because I may not necessarily fit under non-binary or woman. Like, I sometimes wonder if I identify as non-binary, but, like, I don't know. But I it, I say, like, if you're looking for non-cis men, I know people don't want to start fights, and that's why they avoid it, but just say it. Yeah. That's what you're looking for. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say, if you yes just don't no. want to. Yeah. Depending on your visibility. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a good point. Diverse, yeah. I diverse can't say writers. That. I, I can't say that. <laughs> yeah, I would say it does. I'll go back to this idea of like there's so many different narratives within a singular identity. Yeah. I also have the issue of being not cis, but because I present as femme and as defab, I never see non-binary representation that looks like me. Yeah. It just people expect transness and non-binary to look a certain yeah. way mm -hmm. or to have a certain story. 
Yeah, and when they... fat middle age. You know what I mean? Like, nobody... None of the non-binaries. I'm not a skinny, androgynous person. It doesn't really look like me, but it looks a lot less like Steve. And that's really... Like, I I see Steve played, or not Steve specifically, but people that look like Steve, they're a funny joke. And they're not a funny joke. And that's kind of the... I don't know how you would unjoke that... I think there's a... I don't a know conf- how to phrase what the question yeah. I want to ask. I think there's a conflation um, that exists a lot that's be- uh, between gender identity and gender presentation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's expanded a little bit since, like, oh, this is what a man looks like, this is what a woman looks like. But now that we're getting into transness and non-binary, there's still this idea of, like, this is what their gender presentation should be. When ultimately, I think we need to try to divorce them as completely mm-hmm. separate things. But Sam, how would we then know what they are? We could ask what their pronouns are. Maybe have a conversation. Give them respect. But what box do I put them in? Uh, <laughs> I would say that is less important. Than, cats. Than you put cats in boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, other questions out? Yeah. Um, so, I now want to make a queer LARP that's not about AIDS. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do I just uninvite the straights? Just say they can't come? <laughs> like, uh, as a serious question, like, how do you deal with, with straight people coming to queer LARPs, especially? So, I would say not just LARPs, but any spaces. I think you there are spaces that should include allies and there are spaces that should be just for queer people. And I think it's important to decide from the outset which is which. And I think they both have value, they both have potential. Mm-hmm. Because like it's not like we should be like, oh, allies, back off. Like We don't want anything to do with you. There can be problems in the ally community, but completely alienating ourselves from them is not necessarily the most effective way to go so I think it's just deciding like what type of space you're wanting it to be and if it's going to be a space with allies there is going to be a need need to be a little bit of education so uh, um, go ahead there there is a component of stopping and looking at a risk assessment mm-hmm. of what potential damage do you invite into your community. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that fem socialized people do all the time. If I am working on a Kickstarter, like what I say in public, I can't conceivably say no dudes because at that point, Gamergate pays attention to my mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I would say you personally, because you pick verbal fights on the internet with people, cannot actually safely for the rest of the community say no dudes. And so you have to find a beard to say those things. Yep. And so Elsa could say those things. Sam could say those things because they don't go picking fights with, with the alt-right on the internet. That's not entirely yeah, true about that. <laughs> and so there, there is a component of being aware of your own privilege and how you create radical visibility and vulnerability for other people and making sure that you are going through the same safety check processes that, for example, when Rosenstrasch, uh, the, uh, the Warbirds game about uh, a Jewish experience, goes to Kickstarter, they've already done their risk yep. analysis and the game isn't going to Kickstarter for at least three months. Yep. 
and you had a point. Um, so I learned a new favorite linguistic thing recently from a good friend of mine, uh, Diana, and she said that she likes to use the word collaborator instead of ally. Mm. And I really like it yeah. because an ally is it's it just doesn't it's never quite sat right with me. But if people who are not from my identity are coming to the table and asking to collaborate on how to make my experience better, it's very different from an ally who is required. There's like this weird requirement and transitive thing with allyship. An ally you have to give back to them. A collaborator that's a that's that's different. They're coming to your table. I love that. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> um, so I would say there too, um, the question is the intent of your queer LARP. Is it a, um, a space for queer people to um, uh, yeah, like experience their queerness in a community or do you want anybody to come in and experience queerness in a community? Uh, is the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is um, in the groups that I, um, or one group singular really, events, uh, we're a queer-centric group, but uh, anyone's um, allowed to come, but we make it explicit that like the space is for us. And that <laughs> you're allowed to be here as a guest, but like, um, like, Stay in your lane, <laughs> or sort of thing, yeah, for lack of a better term. And you can also have requirements for behavior. Yes, exactly. You know, like you, you can set expectations for people who are not queer yeah. for being in that space. That's allowed. Yeah. You're allowed to say, look, if you if you impose straight norms on this space, you will be asked to leave. Yeah, having a safety policy is very important. Uh, yeah. It's not even just safety, it's actually social contracts yeah. and codes of conduct. Yes, there you go. Yeah, it's a yeah. social contract. It's, you know, we, we are agreeing to create a space that is for us. And if you are coming into that space, you need to be able to respect our rules, not your rules. Yeah. Hey, social engineering. <laughs> I guess I was just ultimately thinking how much everything relates back to creating space. Like, we keep yeah. repeating this phrase, it came up in Avery's game, um... And it's been something I've been thinking about with my thesis, with the interviews I've been doing, because so many of the people I've interviewed so far have kept apologizing to me for talking too long. Um, in this interview, that I'm con like, they are doing me a favor favor by letting me interview them, and they're apologizing for talking too long, because they are femme, because they are mentally ill. They've been like, they have these identities that are are hard. They're hard identities, and that doesn't mean they're like. Like, I, I wouldn't change being femme. Like, I, I love being femme, but it's still, like, it's a hard identity. But it's still, like, I think the more of these difficult identities that are stacked on top of you, the less space there is for you. And you just end up constricted in this box where you, you feel like you need to take up more space. You need, feel like you need to be allowed to, like, exist. But there's just less and less space for you to yeah. do that. Are there other questions? Um, I've never had a panel wrap on time. That's amazing. <laughs> you actually have five minutes to go pee before your next panel if you want. <laughs> All right, so thank you to the panelists. I really appreciate your ability to be vulnerable and visible. Uh, it's hard work. 
and I honor the work you're doing. Thank you. And thank you, attendees, for being part of the conversation. I really love that ASL applause is spreading in this world. <laughs> I, 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 it's great. It's a wonderful way to not disrupt a panel, but also to be like, yes, yes, I agree. It's super convenient. You know, yeah. Very yeah. I'd never seen that before, but that's awesome. It brings me such warm fuzzies. <laughs> I learned it from Elsa. <laughs> I learned it from Elsa, and then I watched Sarah Lynn Bowman normalize it at Living Games. Yeah, because she learned it from do. when I was doing New World Magascola. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might actually be my fault. It's almost like Yeah. Weird. Weird.